Imagine yourself under a starry sky around the warm glow of the sacred fire. As your hosts, Saren Odinson, Jim Two Snakes, and Caitlin Stormbreaker talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Welcome to a show inspired by those late night conversations by real life spiritual practitioners. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? To alike, our world is slowly disappearing, fading into the crimson sunset with a few hugs and a smile we say farewell and dream of the days to come. The waves are slowing their call. The wind is remembering why. The trees are breathing easier now to know that their job is done. The waters are capturing their treasure. The algae is alone in its midst. The fish swim in circles gleefully to know that they are done. Tears start slowly cascading from the heaven, crying out for our sake. But ever so slowly, I look back and I see my sister do the same without realizing that it is time for us to say goodbye. We wallow and we reminisce in all our summer's bliss. We have but one more meeting before we can call that day, that summer, to an end. We bring up old memories and laugh right into the night. From the moment we first met to the very last sea dew ride. From that very first swim to the last high-speed bailout. From the bruises to the broken bones to the stitches and cuts. From the different loves crossing our paths to pouring out our guts. With each new memory, a new tear falls. A tear in each of their honor. If only there was still one summer left to go. And so we leave each other as our time has come to an end. We've done this every year, but this one is the end. This time, it is different. So we say our last goodbye. Poem by Lisa Rebersall, edited by me. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. You're listening to episode number 30. I am Jim Two Snakes, joined by Caitlin Stormbreaker and Sarenth Odinson. How's it going tonight, guys? Very good, thank you. I am recovering from an illness, so I'm sorry if I sound a little weird. My voice may cut in and out, but I figured I might as well plow through with this, because the last time this happened, I lost my voice for about a week. So. Oh no, that's not good. Yeah, you kind of got the sick voice going a little bit, don't you? A little bit, but it's not near as bad as it could possibly be. So I, if it got gets my... really husky, you might get creepy fan mail. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I'm I'm all right with that because I don't get any mail at all. So <laughs> bring it on, guys. Bring it on. So everybody, we're it's just going to be the three of us tonight. We're kind of going to talk a little bit around a topic that is a little bit on the sensitive side. So just be forewarned, we're going to be diving a little bit more into death and grief, especially as it relates to our practices. 
And so with several of us experiencing lots of loss in the last few years, it seemed like a very important topic to talk about. And since it was Caitlin's idea, I'll let her explore it and expand on that concept a little bit more in depth to get us started. So this topic actually came to me on the two-year anniversary of the death of my best friend of 20 years. That poem that I read earlier was actually written by her 18 to 15 to 18 years ago when we were uh, graduating high school. Um, it was a poem that she had read to kind of signify the end of our childhood summer and we we're going into an adult summer um and this morning i edited i edited it a little bit to kind of fit where my life is with her now um and i felt that it was important that we talked about about death and the, the stages and what an individual goes through when they suffer such a profound loss like like I did. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wanted to bring these gentlemen into it because I know that they've suffered it as well and I really appreciate their input on a lot of stuff. But I think it's important, especially with where I am now, to explore these areas and how to use our practices to help us get <clears throat> through it. Because this is not what a lot of people talk about. Usually we talk to people after the fact, after they've gone through it, after they've reached the other side of that suffering and are now offering that gift that they received for the suffering mm -hmm. out into the world. So I kind of wanted to hit this nail on the head and be like, all right, well, this is where I'm at now and this is what I'm doing. All right. So let me understand this right. You want to talk a little bit more about what it's like to kind of go through that process from uh, and how people deal with it on an active level as opposed to um, a death that might have happened a while ago that they're, they're recovering from or have almost recovered from. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yes and no. Like, I okay. kind of want to start from, like, from the beginning, like, what a person goes through when that death occurs and the especially and i i'm all, i can only speak for myself of mm -hmm. course but i'm mm -hmm. sure other people will kind of understand what i'm talking about when i say these things um i want to help other people who want to help those that are suffering understand what that person is going through and even though you feel like you're helping by saying or doing certain things, you're actually causing more harm. Mm -hmm. And maybe some of the thoughts that that person is having during that time, even though you are doing everything to the book and everything that you're supposed to do, but they're just not getting better. So what do you do? And I'm here to kind of try to help you understand what that person is going through. So, for example, for me, um, Jim, of course, you were very active in the first, well, bo actually, both of you. Tim showed up the day it happened uh, because he had a meeting with Matt that day, and he was like, whoa, why are you home? And, of course, I told him, and we said some prayers, and I'll be honest, I don't even remember that day. Mm -hmm. Not really. It was, it's a total fog fest for me, and... 
when my husband left for work that night was when everything kind of crumbled and crashed down on me. But what I wanted to describe was that morning I woke up and I looked at my phone and I got the the text alert saying she had passed away. And this is after five years of her battling cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. And so it was like something punched me right in the chest and everything. My, my vision was blurry. Sound was very, very quiet, but also extremely loud. Like the weirdest things, my feet shuffling across the floor were exceptionally loud. It was almost like I had a, a sensory issue going on. I don't know what other word for it is. Um, things like my, my, the tactile things of like my clothes felt wrong, like they were too rough. And I was so hyper aware of my surroundings that I didn't actually realize that I was disassociating from my body. Those were like the first stages for me, disassociating outside of myself. So I didn't actually have to feel the physical pain of losing my best friend. All and right. so going, go ahead. Sorry. I was just, um, okay. So I'm, I'm just trying to grasp around, um, exactly what you wanted to talk about. I'm, 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 I, I, I'm not quite sure what I can add to that at this point in time. I was just talking about the initial stages of grief. Okay. And then getting more into once you're a few months in, mm. um, things that you can do for that person and what helps and doesn't help because we as humans have these really good sayings that say, you know, time heals all wounds or, you know, it'll hurt less with time, you know, give it time, give it time. But for me, those were not true at all. It still hurts the same amount it did two years ago the day it happened. So, and I, I became very bitter towards those sayings. And I heard mm -hmm. it all the time from pretty much everybody around me saying, oh, yeah, time heals all wounds. It'll be okay. Or, um, like, in, in the initial first few months, you know, you have a ton of people that are like, oh, I love you and I'm reaching out to you and all this stuff. But that eventually tapers off. You know, those people eventually fall away. They go back to their lives. And every time that you see this person afterwards, you always ask them, oh, hey, how are you doing? And that person will tell you, oh, well, you know, I'm still really sad about that. Da -da -da -da. Mm -hmm. And after a while of hearing the same advice over and over and over again, that person who is suffering will feel like they're being a burden on other people. Sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I've talked about this so much and it's the same stuff over and over again. And I'm not actually getting better. And these people don't actually want to hear about it. So then what happens is more disassociation from yourself and from people and from everything, from your family, from your job, from your life, your body, everything seems to stop and the world continues moving on, but you're still stuck here. So what a person, an individual can do 
if they're suffering this way or if there's somebody who has somebody out there in their life that has suffered something this badly, they're, they're, what I have done is I've created a when the shit hits the fan list. <laughs> so basically you make a list of 10 items that helps you ground, find your center, get back within your body and experience yourself. You know, because those are the first steps of healing is kind of getting back to yourself, really feeling, feeling your hands, just your hands for a week and then move on to your feet and then move on to your legs, whatever you have to do, whatever process it is that you have to go through in order to actually get back into your body. Hmm. What are other things that you guys feel an individual could do as a self-care list to help them? recenter and get back to where they need to be in order to start that healing process. Sarah, did you have anything? Yeah, I can, I can speak to my experience when uh, my grandpa passed. Um, I mean, he was, he was just knocking on death's door and you and uh, Caitlin were here for this because we had a kindred meeting that evening. Um, I think the, the absolute worst thing that any of you could have done for me in that moment was to have given me a pat answer. It would have shut me right off. Mm-hmm. Um, the next best thing that you all did for me that evening was you gave me space to go and grieve. You gave me space to really let myself go. Um, this culture places a real big premium on, on being really tight and your emotions are being so clenched all the time, like all under control. And you gave me space to just wildly grieve. And that is, it was incredibly healing. Um, as somebody who, who is losing a loved one, you know, telling telling somebody a pat answer like, oh, time heals all wounds. Well, no, it doesn't. I've got scars that prove the opposite. You know, the, the puckered skin has closed, but healed is a different story. Um, I don't know. I I think that, that grieving is such a such a powerful emotional process that getting out of its way is probably the best thing to do, especially early on. Mm. Um because stunting it just makes it that much harder when eventually it rips through the surface. And I, I, you touch on a very interesting thing with uh, how our society deals with death. You know, people, jobs will often offer a bereavement period, but usually that bereavement is only three to five days, five days if you're lucky. And usually when people take those bereavement days, it's specifically for the funeral. You know, you don't get covered for the day that you found out that information. But you will get covered for your travel time to go to where you need to go or spend time with family, blah, 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 whatever. Um, I was fortunate enough to be working at the greenhouse at the time. And I had warned them ahead of time and said, hey, this is what's going on. I don't know how much time she's got left. And then when it finally did happen, I texted my boss and said, it happened. And she said, okay, take as much time as you need. I legitimately took one day. I took that day 
And then I returned to work the very following day. And then I took the two consecutive days off for her funeral. And looking back on it in retrospect, I probably should have taken a few more days. But I didn't, I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. It was like I was an empty shell of a person. I had no idea. So if you are an individual who has somebody in your life who has felt a profound loss, one of the things you can do is just sit with them. Don't ask them if they're better. Don't ask them how they're feeling. You know how they're feeling. Sit with them. Hold their hand. Bring them a cup of tea. Maybe put on their favorite TV show. Ask them, hey, have you taken a shower today? Have you eaten? Can I bring you a meal? And if they want to talk about it, they'll talk about it. But for me, the reality of it is talking about it didn't help. And it still hasn't helped. It is still hard. It still sucks. And it still hurts the same amount. And no amount of talking about it or bringing it up has helped. Because I also sit with the weight of well, I'm just bothering these people now because it's been two years. I should be better now. And then I feel guilty and anxious around that feeling too. Mm. So there's, there's a lot that goes into it and it's just understanding that process and what a person is going through. And they know that everybody has lives. They understand it and they respect it. I would never ask anybody to go out of their way to pamper me or baby me. I mean, do I seem like that type of person to you guys? Like, oh, yeah, (laughs) come wrap me in a cuddly blanket. No, absolutely do not. Um, But that's, that's a thing. And one of the things I wanted to talk about tonight was discovering your death language. Mm -hmm. What is that and what does it look like for you? I'm slowly going through the paces of understanding what my language of death is. And it's actually helping helping me to kind of broaden my understanding and my connection to death and its importance. Um, and part of that for me is it, it's not even the emotions and everything that I felt going through it. It's not the fact that I suffered from suicidal thoughts because when we were teenagers, she saved my life and now she's gone. So why should I stay? It wasn't any of that. It was getting back into my body and understanding that suffering It was understanding that grief. It was understanding that physical pain that I felt and developing compassion for myself in order to help myself get through it, to help me understand why I had such a strong reaction to her passing away. And so the more and more I sit with these emotions and the more and more I understand them and I learn their language... I'm able to turn that compassion out into the world to other people. And for me, that's part of my language of death or my death language. I, I think that developing our language around death is hugely important. 
I think <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up, especially given we're so near Sowentide. Um, the thing about death in this in this culture is we don't even talk about the physical process of dying, let alone what the person left behind is doing. Um, you know, the physical sensations you describe, some of those are classic signs of depression. Some of them, you know, like you mentioned, disassociation. That's Those are trauma responses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've gone through a traumatic event. And mm-hmm. our culture does not treat it with the, the dignity and respect that it deserves. Um, you know, and again, when my grandfather died, I couldn't even take time off because I couldn't go, go visit him for his funeral. So, um, the way that we approach death is, is hugely important and starting the dialogue now before we lose somebody or lose somebody else is, is actually a really smart way of going about it because now the next time things happen, you have something to address it with. You know, not just you in terms of you, Caitlin, but also you in terms of the audience. Um, and it's, it's not a fun subject to dig too deep into and definitely have a support network, um, especially if you have suicidal ideation, self-harm, uh, those kinds of histories. Your support network is going to be everything both before and after you confront death. And so developing death language, not only on your own, but as a community is actually really important too. One of the the simplest, yeah, one of the simplest things someone said to me recently was, do you know how I know that you're meant to be here? And I said, how? And she goes, because you are. You are physically here, and that's how I know you're meant to be here. And that was the that kind of hit me really hard because, you know, you get those, like I, I said before, you get those sayings like, oh, there, you were meant to be here. Like the big divine energies came down and you eons and eons of ancestral love, blah, 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 all that stuff. But it's, it was such a simplistic statement that made it about me and put it in my control. And that, and from my understanding and my years of, suicidal thoughts and depression and trying to understand it and where it comes from. And for me, it's a lot about control. Mm. I had those thoughts and those ideas because I felt like I didn't have control. And this individual gave that control back to me saying, you're here because you are here. And I know you're meant to be here because you're here. And that, too, is also part of my my language of death. And I, I have been very close to death. I've lost many people in my life. Never, never this extreme, never this hard. Um, but ever since a very young age, I was four, I think, when I went to my first funeral. Um, and then several times consecutively throughout my life, I've been to funerals for family members or friends or friends' moms or, you know, what have you. And our societal understanding of death and what comes after is so limited in 
there's this idea of, okay, well, it's done and it's over, so you should just get up and move on, right? You should be better now. It's been six months. You should be better now. There's a time to that recovery. There, It takes time. And if you want a really good story or an understanding or an explanation of how long it takes someone to recover from a trauma, I, I beg you to go watch The Legend of Korra. Watch all four seasons, but especially the last two. It takes her, what was it, three years, I think, to recover from that that trauma that she experienced. And I'm not going to spoil anything for you guys, but that is real. Uh, what is it called? There's a word for it. There's like a, it's a real world example in a, a show, a TV show, you know, and the way they present it is so perfect and wonderful because like you were saying, Tim, she kind of went through her freak out, you know, her wild grieving like you did. And I don't think I ever did that. I never had a wild grieving. I never had that. I can totally let loose and feel these feelings and get through it. Instead, I had to wake up and be a wife and be a mom and take care of the household and I had to go to work and I had to I had to support my parents who were fighting the day of her funeral and I had to do all of these things and so I never really had that time I never really had the ability to grieve because we don't have that in our society and I I was talking to the girls that I work with they're all from Mexico they, so their father recently passed away and they were asking me about our funeral rites and what do we do? And I was explaining to them, well, we have a funeral and usually there's a, there's a wake beforehand where you go in and you see the body and you see the family and blah, 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 all this stuff. And they were like, really? That's kind of weird. And I was like, well, explain yours to me. They have a 24 hour vigil at the house of the deceased mm -hmm. where they light candles and they say prayers and the whole family comes together and they eat food and they mourn and they laugh and they cry and they do all this stuff. And there's just this huge support system for the entire family that they all come together and for 24 hours or more, depending on the family and on the, the tradition, they will all sit together and make sure that that spirit is fed and taken care of before it can move on to the next the next stage of its existence. We don't have that here. I mean, a lot of our, our pagan cultures, you know, we have our ancestor altars and we do our work. And I will, like, when my grandmother passed away, I lit a candle for 24 hours on my altar for her. But it was just me. You know, we don't have a huge support system for something like that. At least not that I'm aware of. It, we definitely don't. I guess I'm, 
I'm just I forgive you guys. I mean, you guys for being so quiet. Um, I feel strangely out of words in this topic in this particular moment because um, I, I don't have even remotely the same kind of of mourning language that you guys have. To me, the concept of being that all out in mourning is really kind of alien to a large degree. Um, I don't know if it's all this years of this sort of work or whatever, but if someone passes, they passes and I'm sad, but I'm sad more for my loss of being unable to interact with them the same way. And when I do grieve heavily, uh, uh, Saren saw this at one of the pagan fests, it'll be years later. And even then, like that was my father, but I think I only grieved so heavily because of the altar that was there for Odin. And it had a lot to do with, uh, with Odin's work more than anything else. My, my loss language seems to be very ceremonial, but I, I just don't, I don't think I mourn the same way you guys do. So it's, it's hard for me to have, I get upset at the funerals because I'm upset because other people are upset. That's when the caregiver in me kicks in, but I don't, I don't think I mourn the same way you guys do. So it's hard for me to give good advice in this area. Well, I think that is your language, Jim. I think the ceremonial side of it is your death language. You are, like you said, you're the caregiver. That's the way you express that language within yourself. You take that grief and that loss and you have come so far that you are able to actively transform it into something active and put it out into the community and help support others. And that's how your death language looks. And for everybody, everybody's death language is going to look different. Mm -hmm. You know, mine is even different from Tim's. We do have points that are the same, but there's still there's enough that's different that it's unique to each and every one of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that when I when I went through the grieving process and losing my grandpa, it was very very different from when I'm in support of other people. Um, you know, dealing with people in grief when I'm a caregiver is very different than when I'm directly involved. So, um, my experience as a funeral assistant was being a rock for people. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my, my job when I'm there for people who are grieving is to be a rock. Um, I don't know if you remember the day, Caitlin, when you and I talked about the passing of your friend, but a lot of it was me just sitting there and quiet with you and just listening. And I know for a lot of people in this culture, that is not the the thing that is done. You're either talking or you're doing something to fill the air. Um, And that's where a lot of those little pat comments come from. People get awkward at the silence, so they think of the first thing that they can think of. And that often ends up being a cliche that they dug up some other time that someone used on them. Right. But I'm, I'm here to tell you guys, especially a loss that profound, they're not even really listening to you. Like, Tim, I, I remember you being there, but I don't really remember us interacting very much. Like, I don't remember anything that you said to me. I don't remember anything my husband said any said to me. You know, let those silences be. You know, just let them be. Be there for that person. If they start crying, hug them. 
you know, that is one of my initial responses to when somebody is suffering from grief is I just wrap my arms around them because I know what that feels like. I know that sense of loneliness. I know that sense of feeling hollow. And so one of my responses is to instinctually put my arm around them to remind them like, nope, I'm still here. You're not lonely. I know this hurts, but there's still a person with you. So with everybody's language, death being language being a little bit different, um, I, I'm not disagreeing with with holding space for them and being there with them and hugging them and that sort of thing. Please don't don't take this that way. But just like with depression, uh, sometimes people have to remind it that they will get through this. And so isn't it also true that what is a pat comment for you might actually be helpful for someone else? It's a fair point. It actually could. But I think you have to pick your moments. Sure. You know, yeah. you, you have to make sure that individual is actually hearing you instead of just and you have to actively listen to them, too. Right. I I think uh, uh, if I was going to draw some comparison, it would probably be from when we're working with a talking stick and you, you have to spend that time really listening to someone before you can speak. And I, unfortunately, there are some truisms in some of those comments about people getting through things and and and, and that time may heal this wound, but at the same point in time, um, you can't just say them for the sake of saying them. You're right. You have to have the right time for that. They have to be listening and engaged, and and um, there has to be that sort of interaction between you. Mm-hmm. And if you have a method that helped you get through that type of suffering or through depression or anxiety also finding that right time to share that. Like if the Mm -hmm. person is actively seeking advice for it, absolutely offer it up. But if the person, especially if you suffer from depression, like I can pinpoint it on people. I can see them when they're in that hole and I know nothing I say to them will help. And at least for me, I know that when I'm in that darkness, anything that said to me to be encouraging just ends up pissing me off because I've heard it a thousand times and I'm just like, it doesn't help. Stop saying it, you know, do something else. But when I'm coming out of it, that's when you reach down and offer a hand and say, we're going to get through this. Mm -hmm. Not you, we, because it gives them a sense that somebody is there, you know, that they're not doing it alone. That was a big thing for me was changing language, my actual physical vocabulary. Instead of saying, you're going to get through this, I say, we're going to get through this together. I'm going to help you. This is what helped me. Let's see if it helps you. Mm -hmm. Samantha, would you have something that you were wanting to add there? Yeah, I think. I think one of the things that every one of us has touched on in some fashion has been flexibility. Um, Mm -hmm. Because as you develop a dialogue with a person, you're going to really get a feel for where their death language, if you're paying attention, you're, you're going to get a a feel for where their death language is coming out of and where their perspective on things. This is, this is also really where a perspective on, on death and life is really important in knowing your, your audience, if you will. Um, when I was doing funeral assistance work, 
you know, Bible quotes worked very well on helping people maintain perspective while they were in the midst of their grief. Because it's something they don't tell you when you hire in is you're going to get people who just take you aside and really need to talk and the priest isn't doing it for them. Mm-hmm. Um, which sucks because it's really not. <laughs> the oh. priest needs to be more aware and it's really not your damn job. But right. um, <laughs> you signed up for it. You're here. Here you go. Um, so developing a rapport um, and developing an understanding of that person's death language is hugely important because it gives you a perspective on how you proceed. Because if I tried throwing a Havamal quote at a Christian, it ain't going to do anything. <laughs> you know, just just being really blunt and obtuse with it. Um so I think that, that being very sensitive to where you're coming out of and and being really aware of how you're phrasing, because that could that could mean all the difference between me listening to you or shutting right off. Um, there was a lot of conversations that I would get into with people who were who would listen to me occasionally and tangentially. Like no nobody in our personal circle, but like people I would talk to and be you know, when I start hearing the pat answers when I start shutting off because I know that you're not actually paying attention to mm-hmm, what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I very much get that. But on the other hand, the pat answer sometimes would hit at just the right moment if the person knew my mindset and would listen to where I'm at. Uh, it it really like you I think I think you touched on this, Jim, is like timing is is really everything. Um it, it's true of comedy, it's true, it's true of grief. Um, you know, sometimes it's a, qu- a question of, is, is the iron hot enough? Is the tool right for the job? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and cliches are useful because they, they, they are truisms for a reason. <laughs> right. <laughs> they I are mean, what they are because they work sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, they're, they're stereotypical statements and they're used because they, they work. Um, and so I think that the thing about developing an understanding of how we relate to death is really important. And really sitting down with yourself and figuring out where you sit in your cosmology, how death plays in your life, um, how death plays in the life of others is is important to reflect on. But it's also just sitting with that grief in your own time and there is no frigging timetable. I cannot emphasize that enough. There are still times where years after the fact, my family members will still grieve over the loss of a family member and that's okay. You're, you're allowed to still miss them. You're allowed to still grieve. You're, it's okay to have those, those heart wounds. That means they meant something to you. And just because you've been able to move past it and you've been able to process it and put it down, maybe you're not in that grief space anymore. That's also valid. That doesn't mean that they didn't mean anything to you. Everybody grieves and goes through the grieving process in their own way, even if there's archetypal paths through it. The other thing that's important to remember, and this is something that I had to come to terms with myself over these last couple of weeks is the fact that I'm not the same person I was before this happened. And there's no way I'm going to be that person again. She's, she's gone. She died with Lisa. And I fought against that for the longest time. And now that I'm openly accepting it, I'm looking out at this big, scary world going, Oh, who the fuck am I in? Am I now? You know? Oh my God. 
okay, so let's figure this out. But that's okay. And that that's a thing, you know, that's a thing that happens. And a lot of people don't address that. And they find themselves stuck in between that. All right, I felt the grief and the sorrow and the pain and the sadness and all that stuff. And I've accepted it. And it is what it is. And it's years down the road. But now I'm here at this tipping point and I can't see what's after it because I want to be that person I was before all that grief and sadness and anger and depression and anxiety and blah, 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 all that other stuff. But you're never going to be that person. And that's okay. Because you're going to be a totally other person who is amazing and wonderful and has this developed language of death to where you can see suffering and you can help it. You can aid it in its healing. You can take what you learned from everything that you went through and bring it forward into who you're going to be. And that's awesome. So as a, as a questioning point here, assuming and presuming that everybody has different variations of their own death language, what advice would you guys give to someone who is in that state of mourning, whether it's something more recent or something that may have hap- might have happened a few years ago that they feel like they're carrying a lot of that burden still, what advice would you give them as a way of figuring out that new person that they are, that, that new spiritual path, that new mental path? How do they figure out the steps for themselves to move forward? For me, I would start on a very primal and basic level of the physical body, the very real, very literal physical body. Get to know your hands again, get to know your feet again, get to know your body, the way it moves. What music do you enjoy? Has it changed? Are the songs that you used to dance to not as moving anymore? Do you have new songs that you dance to? Explore the physicalness of your body and its existence here in the world enjoy that experience start with your physical body and then work out and get into your deeper more spiritual emotional mental bodies but for me i had to start physically what about you tim um for me it was a combination of emotional release and ceremony Um, so the very first thing I did after learning my grandpa was dying was, uh, I took a walk and took a, took a pipe with the pipe and smoked on the steps of the nearest Catholic church and made Catholic prayers at each step, kneeling on them with my, um, kneeling on each step and walking up the steps on my knees it's traditional yeah yeah you are um even even recalling that is pretty is is uh tapping into some emotion there because it was just a really raw and powerful experience um but for me ceremony is is a huge component of it and you don't have to know what you're going to do beforehand but ceremony in and of itself and whether it's holding vigil, whether it's it's doing traditional mourning methods, and traditional mourning methods, I should point out, did include wild, wild displays of emotion and rending of clothing in some ancient cultures and some modern cultures too. Um, 
you know, allowing for the free expression of your grief, however it manifests and getting out of your own way is, is one of the best damn things I ever did for myself and having people there to help me through that and do that was huge. So, um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a complex ceremony. It doesn't, unless, unless you feel like you need that. Um, but for me, mourning my grandfather ceremonially really did help because, um, it, it's an initiation. Like, let's, let's call it what it is because your Haminga, if, if this is somebody that you're close to, your Haminga is tied tight enough to them. Your, your personal luck and power, your ties of, of earth are, are tied tight enough that they're bringing you along for the ride too. <laughs> I mean, God's helped my students when I pass. Um, because for them, it's going to be an initiation. It's one that none of us are going to probably want, but it's going to be one that they're going to have to deal with. And so I, and I didn't realize this at the time. That's what was going on because I was in the middle of my grief and Mm -hmm. who's, who's sitting there in the middle of grief thinking, Oh, I'm being initiated. Great. Um, (laughs) besides me, right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I, I sometimes envy your, your clarity there because um, I, I wasn't clear at all. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was in the, the midst of my shit and it's not good. And it's not bad. It just is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 yeah, so sometimes I kind of have to remind myself because of how much this society prizes control. Mm-hmm. But personally, what I needed to do and had to do was, experience that raw grief that raw emotion and be okay with it not only be okay with it but actually express it in front of other people which is which is a pain in the ass uh just just right to yeah well well, i'll tell you i'll tell you guys where ceremony can come in handy and and you kind of expressed that already a little bit uh is that um ceremony can set up a place for that wild grieving um, sometimes you have to approach it. Um, you don't have the luxury of approaching it right at that moment. Um, so you might, you might be the person that's in charge of the arrangements. You might be the person that has all these responsibilities. So you might actually have to set aside a ceremonial time and space and call a circle and do all the other things that you need to do to have a space for that wild morning. And the, the question I want to pose uh, to you guys now is that, um, Saranth, compared to what you did, which included some ceremonial space for some wild mourning, versus you, Caitlin, I I want you to step out of your this-happened-to-me-personally shoes, and I want you to look at this from the lens of a practitioner. Do you think that the lack of that wild mourning, the, the, the lack of creating a space to allow that wild mourning, is what prolonged some of the intensity of some of that grief? I absolutely do. Um, I, and it's something, it's a hard truth that I've had to swallow recently. I mean, you both know that I'm super good at asking for help in situations in which I am having a difficult time with, you know? (laughs) Um, and I, oftentimes I, I find myself as being very independent and I can do this on my own and I can make it through it. Nobody, nobody can see me crack or break, even though you've both seen me a sobbing mess, of course. Um, 
And I, I thought that was strength. Mm-hmm. I thought I was being strong, not, not for myself, but for my family. And I was actually doing them a disservice. I was robbing them of the ability to help me through that. And I think... Mm, that's a if, powerful insight. If I could go back, which, mind you, I don't want mm-hmm. to. I don't mm-hmm. want to do that again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't blame you. If I could go back, I would have a wild grieving ceremony, and I know exactly what I would do. And it's probably something that I will do within the next couple of weeks because I feel like the energy is still there. Although refined, it still needs to be released. And I think I know what that looks like. And it's probably going to be me with the bone in my hand beating the earth and screaming because that's how I express wild emotion. Mm -hmm. I I think what you said is really powerful there because... um, so one of the things that is often said about human nature and, and psychology and even our spirit is um, when we are depressed or upset, one of the ways to process that is to actually aid other people. And so what you said is powerful because it, it makes me think that if if we're not mourning, we're denying someone else the ability to help you. You know, you could, two people. If if I'm caring for you and you're caring for me, that creates this cycle, this circle, this energy uh, of dynamics that allow us all to mourn and process more completely than if it's one person leaning against the other. Um, so I think there's something to be said there about the selfishness of of holding back sometimes that yeah the selfishness i want you to say it again the selfishness of holding back because it is selfish you're not saving anybody from anything you know these people who are in your lives that love you and care for you want to do these things for you they want you to lean on them and in turn they want to be able to lean on you as if you're like me at all, people lean on me all the time. And it's okay. I accept it. I love it. I enjoy when people come to me for help because then I, I, I feel like I'm useful in their lives. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I very rarely ever reciprocate that feeling is kind of rude and is very selfish. And I feel terrible and I apologize to every single person listening that is like, <laughs> oh my God, she finally figured it out. So we're um, we're covering the topic of uh, reciprocity or gabo in mourning, which is kind of someplace I didn't expect it to go, but it's really true. I see reciprocity fits everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. me, it fits everywhere. And it, for me, I'm understanding that it is needed for there to be proper balance. I agree. I think that uh, that balance is a tricky road for us to walk, especially when when we have a culture which doesn't understand what the hell stoicism is for one. Because everybody's like, "Oh, well, we got to be stoic." Well, stoic is is dealing with the emotions as they come and, mm-hmm. and treating them as neither good nor bad. It's not shutting them off. It's experiencing them and going, "Yep, those were emotions. 
not those are emotions and those are bad things and we should put those in a box and we should never experience those ever again <laughs> that's that's not stoicism that's that's just compartmentalizing your emotions and that's setting yourself <laughs> up for disaster that's just cramming them down into a already cracking bottle that's bound to explode eventually and suddenly you're no longer stoic i'm sorry you're what about my name <laughs> <laughs> We're not looking for real-world examples, Tim. <laughs> right, no, I, mean, I think that's, that's, a, that's a fair point, because what I said yeah. earlier about how I process the grief language, I am, uh, by my nature, a very emotional person. So there are a lot of emotions going through me and that I'm encountering all the time. It's just um, in that those particular moments, they tend to hit me a little bit different. Yeah, I think that's actually something I'm really happy you mentioned that because it's it's not that you're you're emotionless, it's mm-hmm. that you you have maintain you maintain this mastery for lacking of a better term, and I think it's actually kind of apt given the things you've been through. You have a kind of mastery over your emotions where you can experience them without being completely overwhelmed. Yeah, you have what they call emotional maturity, which a lot of people don't have. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far, but I I am fairly comfortable in my own skin at this point in time. So, But I mean, the, the point that I, I'm, I'm getting at is that this culture in particular is so uncomfortable with emotions that even that degree of processing, even if you don't think it's emotional maturity, it is emotional maturity, at least for our overculture, because our overculture doesn't even want to deal with the emotions, let alone encounter them in a headspace which treats them as good Mm -hmm. and i think that compartmentalizing invites a lot of long-term trauma and it's not even necessarily that the death itself needs to be a severely traumatic event but the bottling up of the emotions that you feel and then you stock away like you're bottling mead well congrats it's not mead it's a grenade um you you pull the pin and now it's a question of when it goes off well, um, I think there's a point in there too. I want to I want to touch on which is the expectation of mourning. Um, yes, because I think that as long as we're exploring the how how people mourn differently, that we need to touch on the fact that different things will hit you different ways, and that it's really unfair to yourself and for the people around you if they judge you on this as well. That that the same things are going to hit you the same way. So for the example that I'll give is that like someone in your close family might pass away and your outward mourning might be relatively brief. There's nothing to say that it has to be a long period of time. However, when your family pet dies, that might take you months to get over. And so we cannot look at it as a commodity exchange where, well, Uncle so-and-so was worth three times as much mourning as that dog. That That's not how these things work. And so I want to make sure that that's out there as well, that it's okay to have different levels of mourning for different things and different people in different situations. And, it, and that includes the, the animal companions and other things in our life as well. I've often said that the traumatic part sometimes about a divorce, for example, it isn't... Um, necessarily the emotional arguments that you had with the other person. But I've noticed that after a divorce situation, there's always been a period of mourning. And I equate that as mourning for the potential of what was in that relationship. So mourning hits all kinds of different ways and situations. That's very true. 
I also want to touch on that in, in terms of of regularity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, losing my pet was much more traumatic in my my everyday life than it was losing my grandpa because my grandpa was off in Arizona. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I immediately mourned him, did my ceremony. Uh, a week later, I sat in a Catholic church and went through everything but communion, and I was good. I was actually pretty well put together by the end of that grieving process. And then a year later, I'd sp- I'd speak his name again. It's one of the taboos I keep with my own dead is I don't speak their name for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Aushi died, I was a friggin' wreck because I'm <laughs> used to the contact. Right. You know, and where the hell did Aushi go? You know, the very next day I was asking, where the hell's the cat? Mm-hmm. And then it hit me. It was like I was crying all over again. It was a, it was a friggin' mess. Because, you know, you're used to the kitty being there. Where's the damn kitty? Right. Yeah, um, no, that's completely true. And so there's different levels to that, you know. I mean, when, when you're talking about blood family versus family that lives with you, that's huge difference. Mm-hmm. Huge difference. Uh, and I think um, once you start to understand your own language of death, it'll help you actually understand others language of death so you might experience that to where you go to a funeral of a family member who you were very close with and it hit you very hard but off in the corners uncle joe and aunt sandy who are laughing and joking and being very jovial at kind of a somber place and Mm -hmm. to understand that they don't have the same level of grieving as you do is okay it's okay for them to grieve in that way you know, you don't have to feel anger or frustration towards them like, well, you should be sad because this person died and they were very close to me. Yeah, but it's okay. You know, right. when my grandmother died, I watched her her children tear each other apart. Mm-hmm. And there are massive rifts between all three of them. And my poor mother is stuck in between, is stuck in the middle. And I watched them just kind of crash and burn really hard. And I was just like, wow, that's, that's terrible. And I feel really bad for you guys. And I ran support for my mother in the process and kind of talked to her about things and, and supported her through it. But I, I'll be honest, I wasn't that sad when my grandma died. I wasn't that close with her. Mm -hmm. She wasn't that great of a lady. She's moved on now and I can do the work with her. I need to do in order to elevate her and get her moved on. Um, but for my cousin, it, my cousin was a mess, you know, <laughs> my cousin was her favorite and she was sobbing the whole day and I didn't shed one tear mm-hmm. and I didn't feel bad about that because I knew where I stood with my grandmother and I knew where she stood with our grandmother. But I know that when my Nixie dies, I've already warned Matt. I said, that's going to be a bad day for me. <laughs> it's going to be a bad month. Right. I'm going to lose my shit, man. Yeah. My family's the same way. I mean, it, it depends where I think languages of mourning extend into our families as well. And, and, um, for like my immediate family here, we're all very jokey and play around and stuff. And so, um, I don't know. It, that affects our language as well. Someone observing from the outside might have thought none of us took it seriously, but, that's just kind of how our family is. And that's okay too. Mm-hmm. I think it was pretty, pretty awesome when uh, my, my wife's uh, grandma passed away. 
the story she shared at her her memorial was a funny one, which was totally in, in keeping with uh, where she, her grandma came out of. Um, you know, so that's another, that's another thing about de- death and, and dying in language is, you know, sometimes macabre humor is the way to handle it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes being jovial and being, yep, yep, this is definitely a grandpa thing, slurping a coffee and you spill it on yourself, you know, and making a joke at your own expense, you know, humor is, a, is, a, is another avenue. And I, I think that, that death language needs to appreciate all the different ways of appreciating our dead. Right. It can't just be, oh, I've got to be like hardcore morning. Um, <laughs> I know my family always my family always teases me about wandering off when no one's paying attention. So I think I'm gonna prepay to have someone hide the body on him. That'd be great. They, oh God, he even <laughs> wandered off when he was dead. <laughs> Who wants to go find the drowger? <laughs> oh, get him! Damn it, <laughs> Jim. Play for your own funeral. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a popular meme. I've seen a a couple of places, you know, the, uh, somebody playing pop goes the weasel at a closed casket funeral. Oh, (laughs) that's bad. And you know, you know, somebody's going to do it. Well, yeah. Right. I, I made a deal with a friend of mine and I, I asked him, at my funeral, will you show up in a Grim Reaper outfit and just sit in the back row? And they said, I'll do you one better. I'll look at the oldest person in the room and be like, you're next. I'm like, oh, you're awful, but I love it. But I think this, I think this actually does say something to how we process death because um, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, humor is deflecting language. Not always. Sometimes it's processing language. Mm-hmm. I, I sometimes process my emotions a lot better through humor because it, it puts a salve on what otherwise would be just a straight long cut, you know? Listen, uh, ev- every society and every mythology has some version of a trickster or a sacred clown, and that's exactly why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and laughter is important, too, because of the chemicals it releases in your brain. You know, it it actually has a calming effect and helps to rebalance everything that's going on within your body. You know, it actually helps you release those emotions that you've been holding up. So having a good, hearty belly laugh can be very helpful. You were asking earlier, Jim, about, about how we as practitioners can look at this and i think as a as a shamanic practitioner as a a spirit worker i think um gauging where i need to come from whether it's humor whether it's uh whether it's high ceremony whether it's just okay cool you're in grief um you smoke Mm -hmm. you know here's a cigar go chill out somewhere um or just like let's take five Take five. You know your family. Your family's still going to be here in five minutes. Let's just go talk for a minute. Um, I think that as practitioners, giving ourselves as wide a repertoire is 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 really important, and being open to places where we may not be totally comfortable, um, because we're talking about a, a subject that's actually pretty close to a lot of people's chests. Mm-hmm. 
and that we as a society are still wrangling with. And, and I, I think that given the societal issues we've got, are, we're still going to keep wrangling with it. Um, as a practitioner, I, I think for me, the funeral assistant gig was one of the, the better ways that I got to explore a lot of this because I got to see a lot of different people in a lot of different stages of grief who were just simply not being helped by their their pastors or their priests. They were giving right. pat answers or their ceremony wasn't doing anything for them. So yeah. they'd come over and they'd talk to the guy who had a freaking neon light above his head or something. <laughs> I, yeah, I hate to say that. I mean, because, you know, my... My experience is only primarily from a white Judeo-Christian culture here in North America. But that being said, the the overculture that I'm familiar with, a lot of the priests really suck at their job when it comes to funeral work. Yeah, and it's not even just for the dead person. It's for all the people they're supposed to be ministering to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a really important point, is that you're supposed to be, you know... Is your job toward the dead or is your job toward the living? And a lot of these folks are trying to have it both ways and they suck at both of them. Well, I think I think the job I think the job is to care for both, but it's a matter of knowing how to do both. And and some of mm-hmm. them there are just simply to go through the motions and it doesn't you know, you can I, I've been way too many funerals where they not only know know the person that has passed away. They don't know the family. And that's, you know, that's, that can be good. It can be bad. It, you know, it all depends. That family might not have attended a church or a gathering regularly. So I'm not holding that against the person officiating in that regard. But on an energetic level, they're not helping anything. They're not doing anything. There's no force behind their words. There's no conviction or energy behind their words. They're, they're not even acting like typical human beings would act. They are hiding behind their, their collar or their, their tie and not engaging properly. And I find that um, rather disappointing. I think you picked up on something. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, There, uh, just a real quick story. The very, the two largely different things between Lisa's funeral and my grandmother's funeral was the guy who conducted Lisa's funeral actually knew her. That had been her pastor since she was a little girl. Mm -hmm. And she had worked with him for months up until her death, you know, talking about, what she wanted to be done and what she wanted to be said at the funeral and who she wanted up talking and how she wanted everything to work. And the only thing I didn't like about her funeral was the church. The church was way too gaudy. Like there was way too much stuff going on. I was just like, this is insane. You got, this is too much. Like, I don't, (laughs) uh, okay, this is terrible. And then at my grandmother's funeral, he wasn't even her pastor. He was my aunt's pastor. He had met with her one time before she passed away. And his service was like he was trying to promote his church and to accrue more followers and to get more people into his church. And every and everything he said would somehow, in a very roundabout way, come back to my grandmother. But it wasn't really about my grandmother. Mm-hmm. I ended up doing most of that work myself after everybody had left. You know, I walked up, I said my goodbyes, I gave her coins for the ferrymen, I put oil on her hands, I said the the prayers that I needed to say, and I made sure that she wasn't attached to her body when we fucking dropped her in the ground. You know, and I think nowadays our pastors, and I, I have nothing against the 
Judeo-Christian churches. I, I have nothing against them. Obviously, they work for some people. Um, others, they do a really shitty job for, you know, to each their own. I'm not, I'm not going to do that here or at all ever because I don't care that much. But they, it, it's like a dog and pony show to them now. There is no spiritual side to it anymore. Not really. You get that that dime a dozen every now and again that that you look at them and you're like, you got it. You get it. You have that spirit. You feel it. That's, that's Christianity. And then you get these other people that are there that are just waving their arms like that guy who thought he knew sign language at Obama's speech. Are you a you priest know? that's just in this for the tax exemption? Is that what is really going on here? Is that... I mean, <laughs> if it looks like a fish, then it's a fish. <laughs> you know, something else I want to touch on real quick for morning and, and um, that you're talking about your grandmother makes me think of Caitlin is that when we know a death is coming, if you know that someone is terminally ill or they have cancer or, or something else is going on, mourning actually begins a lot sooner than the person's passing and that's where you see a lot of arguments within couples and caregivers and that sort of thing because they're simultaneously trying to still give care while while going through the beginnings of a mourning process while the person is still there yeah and i i've actually been trying to figure out in my mind which is worse Mm -hmm. a sudden death or a prolonged death because I, I watched Lisa die for five years, mm-hmm. you know, actively watched her die, go from being okay to not being okay to being somewhat okay to being like really bad. And then all, and all back up and down and back and forth and all, all these things. And grandma, she was diagnosed with lung cancer mm-hmm. sometime like this time last year. Oh, no, well, no, it was during a uh, roping season. So it had to have been in November sometime because that's when my mom called me. And I, I talked to my mom through it, and I was like, you're going to be okay. You know, she's lived a lot. She raised some good kids. And it was such a weird dynamic that I t- took up because, it was like, I was supporting her. Mm-hmm. And our roles had switched, you know, where she had always been the one supporting me, but support her mother for several years at this point was supporting her own mother. And helping her with life. And so it was kind of interesting for me that while my grandmother was actively dying, I had actually taken on my mom's role for my grandmother, mm-hmm. you know, with my mother. But, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, that understanding that the mourning process starts long before the person ever dies is important. And you're never going to be ready for it. That come and you're going to be like, oh, I already did this. Sorry. High five. See you. But recognizing that that morning happens when the news comes is important to notice, be aware of. Well, the, you know, the example that I always give or that I've given before, I think to, to you, Caitlin, and some of the other students is that, um, there was a, a couple that I worked with and the man developed, uh, brain cancer and he only had a short period of time left he was losing some motor function and with everything i could muster i 
every spirit I could think of that could call that was appropriate, I blessed a white candle for healing. And when I took it to them, I had to explain what I meant by healing. And in this circumstance, what I meant by healing was that the cancer wasn't going to go away. And that candle was for them to light in the times when she was mad at him. She was mad at his body for breaking down. They were angry about the medications they had to take, the ob schedule, the limitations, the fact that she was soon going to be without him, the fact that he was going to be without her. There was so much, whenever you're in a situation like that, there's so much anger and grief and confusion that, that begin that that's where I was aiming the healing candle at. And so that's where I have that little bit of insight about how early the morning process can start. It's very hard, you know, like you were talking about earlier with control. I think a lot of that anger stems from the fact that we're mourning. There's someone getting ready to pass and there's nothing we can do about it. So there's huge wells of anger in there as well. And that's all part of that process. That's actually very cool of you to do that for them. It's a very insightful, intuitive way to address the beginning stages of somebody going through a loss like that and actively watching somebody die. And it gives them an action, something physical that they can do, mm-hmm. that they have control over, that they can be like, okay, this is a thing I can do right now, and I feel okay about this. I'm really angry at you, and I'm really angry at this cancer we're happening, so I'm going to light this candle, and we're both going to stare at it for a little while. Right. It's, but it, the thing is, it's a physical action. You know, something we live in to our do, heads. yeah. Yep, it's, we live in our heads so much, especially during the morning process, and in life in general. Mm-hmm. But once you get that kind of tactile, physical action thing that you can do, you're engaging the body and you're experiencing the connection between the mind and the emotions and the body. And you're you're actively finding healing, even though the grief is mounting still. You know, yeah. you're still taking steps towards it. not only gave them something physical to do, but by lighting the candle, they could acknowledge all these emotions and, and let them let them happen know that the candle was lit because not to stave this stuff off but because it needed to, it needed to be healed while while they could work on healing it together they I didn't want them to spend their last amount of time together just f- so frustrated and angry all the time you know what i mean so that's where the the mm-hmm. direction i was approaching it from uh, i'm sure you folks have had at least one person come to you for a reading and they're trying to get a different diagnosis from you or they're trying to get some amount of hope when you know it's terminal illness. Um, I, again, I'm, I'm thinking back to you and well, what do you do as a practitioner? That question as, as a, as a spirit worker is actually really important. Um, because you have to be willing to just straight up look a person in the face and say, no, your child's going to die of cancer. I'm sorry. I had to do that for a reading. Mm. That was one of the hardest readings I've ever given. Mm-hmm. Um, and the woman asked me, well, what can I do? And so I laid out more cards because at the time I was a tarot reader. Um, exclusively. And so I laid out, well, these are the steps. This is what's going to happen. And it was, you know, fairly accurate from what I remember her telling me later. Um, 
the thing the thing about doing readings of that sort is you really must get out of your own way and not feed the client a line of bullshit. Mm-hmm. That is so crucially important because that's also something I find that, that quietly the clients are are scared you're going to do is give them false hope. Um, you know, if a team of doctors has told this person, this is stage four terminal cancer, there is literally nothing else we can do about it. Nine inches out of 10, you are not going to pull a miracle out of your ass. Okay. You're not going to be the one mm-hmm. you, your, your job is to get out of the way and give the message. Now, if it's, Hey, maybe there's some healing coming down the road or, Hey, maybe the healing is going to take place in this fashion or that fashion, or maybe they don't have as long or, Maybe they have longer than what the doctors think they will. That's great, but you have to be willing to get out of your own way and get out of the client's grief long enough to give them an accurate message. I find that that is something as a, as a reader I had to deal with on more than one occasion where the person in question lost somebody and they came to me for some kind of resolution. And so as a practitioner, being willing to sit with that person through that grief for the half hour, hour, hour and a half, however long that reading takes you, um, can be really intense. Um, and doing the cleansing work and doing the self-care work for you, your, your own peace of mind afterwards, because mm-hmm. you're going to have to be that rock for that reading. But once that's over, you know, take your time, because it that fucked me up for a while. I'm not even going to lie. Because that was my, like, I had just started at that place, and it, it hit me out of the blue because I had been reading for a couple of months, but you know, nothing that serious. It was a lot of couples who'd come in and ask, you know, well, where are we, do- where are we at? What are we doing? Da, 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 da. <laughs> a lot of softball questions, you know, stuff right. that the, the tarot's like, oh, we got this. You know, this one was just where I had to sit back and be like, okay, I have to be bluntly honest with you. But the tarot, I don't think, I remember something to the effect of the tarot not letting me get away from it either. It was like very obvious. Um, it may well have been the death card. I can't remember. But being willing to sit in that uncomfortable time and sit with that person, because they're they're coming to you to grieve sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, whether, oh, it's the loss of, whether it's the loss of a relationship, whether it's the loss of a, a loved one, whether it's, you know, uh, they want to talk with their dead, or this person was an abusive jackass in life. How do I deal with this now? Because now it's coming to the surface and I've got to handle it. You know, as practitioners, we're going to handle people at different stages of, these, of, of, of grief and of loss. And so it's, uh, th- I think that it's really apropos for, especially this time of year, for us to really think about death language from that perspective, too. Because it can really, you know, especially if you're not, you know, thinking about this question coming up, it can blindside you like it did me. <laughs> it was nowhere near Halloween. It was just all of a sudden this lady walked to the store and was like, all right, so whammo here. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, at least your client asked you the question instead of being called out by your cards, which happened to me. Because oh, this girl shit. came in with a totally innocent question in the three cards that fell out. Where I was just like, uh, is one of your family members sick or dead or dying recently? And she's like, yeah, my mom is really bad right now. And I'm like, fuck. All right, give me your hands. <laughs> And then for me, when I find people that are like that, um, and usually 
when they're in those really heavy initial stages of grief, they're not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. They're not going to move. They're not going to seek help. They're not going to get out of their own heads. It's going to take them a while to actually get up and be like, okay, something's not right. I need help. And it's our job to give them that gentle push after we cleanse them heavily. At least for me, I have to do a very heavy cleansing on the individual. And the whole while I encourage them to talk and express what feelings are coming up. I'm like, if you feel like crying, go ahead and cry. If you want to yell, yell. If you want to laugh like a maniac, go ahead and laugh like a maniac. I'm like, the only thing I ask of you is please don't hit me. I'm like, you can punch the air, you can punch the ground, you can punch anything, just don't punch me. And walking them through that, I, I think it's pivotal just to hold space for them while they're feeling those emotions. And then asking them to make a list of what those emotions feel like so when they come back up again, they can identify it and be like, oh, that's sorrow oh, that's anger, oh, that's this, or that's that. And then they can actively choose whether or not they engage with that emotion. Because they've processed it, although it's still there, it's a little less raw, but they can point it out and be like, oh, that's this feeling, or that's that feeling. And I'm observing it, I see it, I know why it's here, but I don't have to engage with it. I don't have to activate this emotion. I'm going to throw this in here with a huge ass caveat that um, that this is something that I'm not giving as like advice, especially not advice for every situation. But I'm gonna I'm gonna put this in here because I think it's another topic we haven't quite touched on yet. As a practitioner, as practitioners, as people who are self-identified as priests and priestesses in various traditions. Is it important, I think it is, but I'm going to ask you guys, is it important to know when and how to also not let people sit and mourn, how to give them that gentle push and drag them out of their circle a little bit and get moving again? How important is that, do you think, in the process as well? Very, very important because... People get stuck, and sometimes it takes another person to come along with a big old two-by-four and use them like a golf ball and a golf club and say, all right, sweetie, hold on to your hats. It's time to go. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe a little more gentle than that. Maybe you can reach a hand down and be like, let me help you up. I have noticed you're suffering a lot lately. Here's my helping hand. But if they refuse to take that hand, there's nothing you can do about it. All you can really do, and it, this is my understanding of it at least, is to offer it. Maybe give them a gentle kick, but it's their choice in whether or not they can go forward. You can just offer it. You can't force somebody to move forward. <laughs> so, uh... I detect a funny story coming. No, this is... <laughs> So this is how I got one of my students. <laughs> and I know Matt's told this one publicly. I think I can I can think I can I can share this. This is this is how we met, more or less. Oh <laughs> yeah, this shirt this story has been shared, but go ahead. Yeah, that's this is <laughs> yeah, that was my subtle nod to this is good. Um 
yeah. So when Matt and I first met, it was after I had done a workshop. I don't think it was back to back, but I'd done a rune workshop and then an ancestor workshop. And he and his dad have had longstanding issues until very recently in his life. And I said, okay, I got a kick in the head from his ancestors that this shit needed to quit. Like, okay, he's been dead for how long now? It's time. Let it the fuck go. And then the way that I was told to do it was to, if I had to forcibly take him by the arm, to forcibly take him by the arm and make an offering to this dead man. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was like, yeah, we're going to pull you out of this grief. Uh, we're going to pull you out of this bullshit. We're going to pull you out of this muck right now. Enough of this. Because this is getting in the way. We have shit to do, TM. Sometimes as a practitioner, you're going to be that asshole. Mm-hmm. I have mercifully not had to be that asshole as much as uh, I-, I was <laughs> worried I was going to have to be. But the times where it was clearly called for, it was very effective and it was very useful, both for the client and for the spirits involved. And it was the hardest thing I think he had had to do in a very, very long fucking time. Mm-hmm. And that was pour one out to his man, to his to his father. Mm-hmm. And it was, here's the drink. You're going to put this on this fucking tree and you're going to get through <laughs> this. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can I can relate to that. I think um, so. Here's the funny part. I'm going to tell. I'm going to phrase it in a very uh, phrase this in a very uh, broad sort of way because there's about uh, several dozen. We're going to say people. They're going to that could hear this and go, "He's talking about me." But there was literally that many. I can't tell you how many times someone came into the owl when we had it. When we had the wandering owl, we had that shop downtown. I'll go inside and look at the pretty crystals. Two hours later, this sobbing person leaves the store because I went, oh, there's that little pocket of heavy energy. Let me poke that in this complete stranger because they need to let it go. And <laughs> yeah. And I, that happened so many times. I can't even yeah, tell thanks, you. thanks, you son of a bitch. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, there were times where I'd have a reading and you'd do that shit. <laughs> well, you know. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, this is also why multiple practitioners working on a problem are also really useful. This is why support notes are good too. Because if I'm in the middle of reading and I'm focused on the reading and there's energy that needs to be poked and I'm not going to pay attention to that energy because I'm worried about the client. Yeah, I I got to admit. Sarah, there was times I almost felt bad for people that were getting a reading from you when I was standing five foot away trying to mind my own business, but was not succeeding very well. <laughs> There's a lot of really good tag teaming that went on when we were doing work. Oh, man, that was great stuff. But you're, you're right. There were times where it was like, you know, one of the two of us would give them just the right poke. And usually it was like, it's like an Abbott and Costello routine. I'd set them up and you'd knock them over. Oh my um, gosh, Sarah, how did we think not to offer that for this judgment convocation that's coming up? You give them a reading, I hit them with a rattan cane. It would have been perfect. Oh, that would have been beautiful. <laughs> and I'll, I'll be standing in the back with orange juice and cookies and Kleenexes being like, yes, yes, I know. Just take your free stuff and go. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
You could the even use couches the, over there. You the could even use the there. iron runes because we know that they're judgmental as all hell. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for for those who who haven't heard of these iron runes, these these are the ones that usually break a person out of their shit because they just do not care. Uh, they will tear through every shield wall horseshit you've put up in front of you. Um, they do their job exceptionally well. Uh, <laughs> this is this is why I ask people: Are you absolutely sure you want this reading? Before yeah, I whip actually, them out? I actually I'm glad you said it that way because it made me realize that I needed to say in there that when I was talking about us kind of forcing someone uh, to confront their mourning or to get angry or to do whatever, um, it's not like the three of us, not like one of us has sat around and said, Hey, I think I'm going to go fuck with this person today is because we're sitting there and we don't have a hell of a lot of choice in the matter. The runes, the cards, mm-hmm. something spirits grabbed us by the ear and said, uh, yeah, no, this person's probably going to hate you for a good week and a half, but you got to go do this. Well, that happens to me in the grocery store. <laughs> Like, I'll be walking along, and I'll just strike up a random conversation with somebody for some reason, and just the other day, I had some lady sobbing in the soup aisle, and I'm like, I'm really sorry. She's like, I don't know why I'm telling you these things. I'm like, it's okay. It happens a lot. Just just continue. It's fine. Keep going. Yes, yes. Tell me more. But, like, this stuff happens at uh, Michigan Fire Festival, too, or Pagan Fire Festival. Sorry. Michigan Fire Festival is something else, but... um, Michigan Pagan Festival. There it is. Words. Um, (laughs) You'll get people that walk up to the fire that just wants to put an offering in there, but every now and again you get that. For me, it's almost like a hook Mm -hmm. that pulls me forward, and the trickster comes up in me, and not like I'm going to fuck with this person. It's like, oh, I'm going to need this energy so that I can extract whatever it is that they need to let go of. Right. And dump it into the fire. And the reason why I work so heavily with trickster energy is because grief and sorrow and anxiety and depression, those fuckers are sneaky. Mm-hmm. And they know how to hide. But tricksters know where they are. And I know how to hide, too. <laughs> I think it's also <laughs> apropos that that's happening in front of a sacred fire. You know, this is a sacred place. It's it, It's not going to get violated. And we're here. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I, I don't I don't turn on the trickster so much as the uh, okay. You ready to talk? Are you sure? Come on, out with it. <laughs> well, and that's back to what we were talking about earlier about creating space for proper mourning. Mm-hmm. That's part of part of our job as practitioners and probably anybody out there that does energy work. When we say holding space, it's not it's not always just simply being the pillar for someone to hold on to. Sometimes it is literally, okay, we got to clear out this space. So you have a a bubble to do your mourning in or to your healing in. So yeah, we've kicked people away from the fire and been Mm -hmm. like, all right, we really appreciate all the conversation, but this person's got some shit to process. Go away. Right. Right. Holding (laughs) spaces can be a a term that has a lot of applications to it. There's a lot of subcategories to holding space. Absolutely. Yeah. And (laughs) I find myself holding space for people in in uh, Meyer at random times when I'm not expecting it. Like your lady with the soup aisle, I run across. <laughs> I don't do a lot of shopping anymore because I inevitably run across that one person who really needs to talk about their dead whoever. 
<laughs> at like three in the fucking morning, and I'm like, there's like one person in this aisle, and it's me. Fuck. Yeah. It's fate, Tim. Accept it. I know. <laughs> it's it's the it's the neon sign, right? But um, I mean, I mean, this is something to point out, like in terms of the practitioner role, like for anybody who's who's going to be a priest, a spirit worker, shaman, dog catcher, you name it. <laughs> You know, you you might get the, the neon sign lit above your head at really inconvenient times. So be sure that you're in a space where it, and that you have a support network that if you need to dump a lot of stuff really quick to be ready to work, you can do that. And this right. is where knowing your, your craft is really important. Yep. Um, you know, this is this is why. I emphasize so much with people like if you're going to put your shingle out as a spirit worker or something, you really need to know your shit because this will hit you at times where you're not expecting it. Right. And I say that as somebody has been doing this for a good chunk of his life. Where yeah. I'll, I'm still shocked sometimes where some random schmuck is going to walk up to me completely out of blue and just dump their life story in my lap. And then I got to help them with it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, do you have to help them with it? Because there have been times that that has happened to me and I didn't have the capacity to help them with it. And I, I, I use the phrase of that's rough, buddy. Like, I, I'm sorry, but I can't help you right now. It like, I well, have my yeah, own no, it's important to, to know your with, own boundaries you know? and your own limitations yeah. in this work. Definitely. No, but, I think that's part of it. I think that is part of it, but I, I, there are times where this random schmuck and Meyer would walk up to me and I'm like, Oh, I really don't want to do this right now. It's three in the frigging morning. I just want to take my monster and go home. Nope. The spirits are like, you've got to sit there with this. Mm-hmm. There, there are times where that's just, that's just how the cookie crumbles. Right. The one shamanic work sucks because you don't always get to say no. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, I mean, speaking of uh, shamanic work, I, I really wanted to express this with you guys because the last two years um, has kind of felt like an ordeal Mm -hmm. to me. Like I went from having a pretty good spiritual practice to almost nothing. Mm -hmm. Like I, I would do like very basic offerings. I couldn't feel energy at all. Nothing. Like I, I could barely connect with my Mesa to kind of, picking up a little bit but it was like hit or miss for a long long time and it wasn't until uh actually the fourth that i legitimately felt something leave where my third chakra is approximately in that area i was standing in front of my ancestor altar and it just kind of like this thing floated out of me and i felt this like really weird ending sense of loss does that make sense like it was the end sense of the loss that I had felt, but I lost it. Like this little orb thing just kind of left and it's like, Oh, Hey, yeah, there's a world around me. How strange. So, um, I, and I saying this because I actually have to go, but, um, I wanted, I wanted to do this podcast and I wanted to talk to these guys about this because for anybody who is going through this Mm -hmm. I want you to understand that you're not alone you're not alone it is okay that you're feeling these feelings that you're suffering through this grief and 
it's okay. If you need help or if you want help, reach out to members of your your family, your friends, your tribe. Reach out to us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's scary. Don't think at any point that these people don't care about you, that they're tired of hearing what you have to say because they're not. And if they are, then they're not worth it. And that may seem a little harsh, but it's true. Well, to be fair, if they're not, they might have things going on in their own life. And that, that as well. You know, they, they might be having a rough go at life as well. Um, but keep your heads up. It's, it's tough right now. Yeah, but. I do agree. I know Sarenth has been doing more uh, spiritual consultations. I've got about five people I'm working with right now. And, but you guys can still reach out to us and we will do our best to respond, especially if you're feeling the nudge, like you need to do something more with this. If there's some sort of energetic or ceremonial or spiritual work that you need to do, reach out to us. And if we can't help you, we are all very knowledgeable of a lot of different people that might be able to help you and we will help you network. And also in the last, um, week and a half, two weeks, I've got a new group on my, uh, Jim Two Snakes Facebook page. It's a spiritual and emotional support circle. And its whole point is to be a supportive network for people. And so you can sign up there if you're interested and share even some of the worst things that are going on in your life and get, um, some really amazing supportive people helping you out. It's, we're all kind of networking together on this one. So yeah, definitely reach out to us. That's why we are practitioners. Spirit has made those demands of us and that's why we're here. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you, Jim. Well, with that, I guess we'll we'll call it a wrap for tonight. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, I, I do want to throw in there, also, keep your ears tuned on the Around Grandfather Fire Facebook page because we are, in the very near future, going to be setting up a Patreon, finally, and that's going to have some rewards that go with it. Check out... Um, all of us on our social media sites and we love to hear from everybody if you've got feedback if you've got questions we are always glad to interact and if it's a if it's a question that we think is going to generate a good conversation we are more than happy to bring it up on the show and talk about it we've been pretty guest heavy for a while but like this episode we're always willing to to break out and do something on our own and answer some questions so um Thank you, everybody, for listening, and thank you, Sarenth and Caitlin, for joining me one more time. Thank you. Thank you.
has no wrong 